Hi, my name is Luke Cool, and I beat the often path by creating Johnny Footwear. Uh, it's a shoe company that is eco-friendly, and our concept is that we encourage you to uh, take our shoes, and when you're done with them, plant them in the ground, and they'll grow into a tree. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase a different kind of success story. We showcase people who have made it in unusual or interesting ways to help us think outside the box in our lives and in our careers, often, of course, with an eco-friendly twist, and so few people are thinking about the planet when they decide to get into business. Well, my guest today is Luke Hool, creator of Johnny Footwear. This man just had a successful Kickstarter getting funding for his eco-friendly biodegradable shoes. It's no secret that the billions of shoes around the world mostly end up in landfills where they will take more than a thousand years to decompose, if ever. Well, how many pairs of shoes do you personally own? Yep, that should tell you how big of a problem this is. Rather than just bitch about it, Luke created a fully biodegradable, cruelty-free shoe with a twist. Not only will the shoe completely biodegrade if you bury it, it will also sprout and grow an apple tree in its place. Inspired by Johnny Appleseed, let's hear how Luke turned a truly novel idea into a reality. So here is the amazing story of Luke Poole. Well, that's a pretty great thing. First of all, your name is awesome because it sounds like cool when you pronounce it. <laughs> I wish my name was that cool um, or cool. Uh, but I'm very honored to have you on the show. I came across your idea. I think it's an incredible concept. It's so novel and it's so, so, so far outside the box that it's just instantly a conversation starter. And that's gotten you some earned media attention I've seen. You've been on some big shows. You're on the Drew Barrymore show, various other things, if I'm not mistaken. So tell us a little bit about your mission, your journey. How did you get started? How did you come up with this novel idea? Thank you. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, I've been really blessed in that I've gotten a lot of success um, recently with, with media attention and stuff. Um, but I think it's because I'm addressing a problem that not a lot of other companies are addressing at this point. Uh, and we all know that it's important to, to take care of the environment. We need more sustainable solutions. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of those areas where you don't really think about footwear that much. It's just a necessity, right? So you're like, all right, yeah. I'll buy whatever is comfortable, um, whatever looks cool, right? Um, but I want to have those two components, but then also add in eco-friendly. Um, so I just started brainstorming. And, uh, and you know, honestly, it, it took a long time to come to... Uh, to this product in particular, and how I could make a, a greater impact in the world um, through my expertise, which which is designing shoes. Um, well, that's a fabulous introduction. And for those who haven't seen this product, uh, we'll pull it up. We'll put it on the screen as we go. But there's a literal apple seed in the center of this shoe. It's the core. Is it one apple seed in the middle? Yes, yeah, so it's one apple seed per shoe. Um, okay. And uh, and the way that it works is. So, okay, so originally I was like, hey, I should come up with a biodegradable shoe. Um, but other companies have done that with mixed success, right? And there are a variety of reasons I could list off as to why they were successful or why they weren't. Um, but the biggest thing was that they were trying to go after the, you know, um, more of like the hippie consumer kind of thing. I didn't want to do that, though. I just want a cool, stylish shoe that looks good. You could wear with any outfit. Uh, but I also wanted a hook, right? Something that would make people kind of pay attention to it. And... Um, when I realized, hey, you have to put it in the ground for it to biodegrade anyway, it just kind of came naturally. Why not just put a tree seed in there and, <laughs> and have it grow into an apple tree, you know? That's so funny. So did you pick, which variety of apple is it first? First of all, is it all the same? That's a good question. Um, so originally I hadn't even chosen it. 
uh, when I launched the Kickstarter. Um, I was just like, I'm going to go with a standard, maybe like a Gala Apple or something like that. Um, but fortunately, um, I don't know what you would call it, but like somebody who owns an apple orchard, um, they contacted an orchard me. Deer. Like, I don't know. An orchard ear, exactly. Um, so they, they contacted me <laughs> and they're like, hey, you should really think about um, varying the seeds because you might create an issue of having too much of like the one species out there, depending on how successful you are. Uh, he's like, so I'd like to work with you on kind of listing off a few different varieties for different regions. And so he's actually, he's been very uh, helpful in, in guiding me in the right direction, which is really cool. So you're going to have multiple seeds when all is said and done. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Um, a variety of different, different species. Yeah. Talk about things that you can't predict when you're starting a business. You say, what if it's so successful and there's too much of one kind of <laughs> apple tree? I don't think a lot of people have had to worry about that particular problem when they're starting a business. True. True. I mean, Hey, this is, you know, fingers crossed. Um, yeah. Fingers but crossed. It is, it is my goal to, to beat John Chapman. I don't know if, um, if you looked into the company a little bit for like the name, yes. um, yeah. But uh, so I named the company Johnny after um, Johnny Appleseed, who's also known as John Chapman. And um, one of the company's goals now is to exceed the amount of trees that he planted uh, when he was alive. So, I mean, what right now, just, goal. yeah, we're, you know, just, just inching towards it at the moment, but hopefully one day, right? How many trees did he plant? That I don't know. Yeah, no, it's um, it's a mixed variety. Like, there's a lot of different estimates, but the consensus is like it should be roughly around fifty thousand. Um, so I'm looking to beat fifty thousand trees planted. Okay, that's great. And you started with Kickstarter. You said when did you actually put up the page and start going after that funding? Um, so I started the Kickstarter on October twelfth, and we completed it forty days later. Uh, we were successfully funded, which is really nice. Um, so we beat our goal of seventy thousand uh, Canadian. And, um, it was, it was an adventure. I'm going to be honest because, you know, I'd done one Kickstarter before and, and it was successful. Um, but at the time Kickstarter was really, they were, they were really helping push it forward by making it a project that they love. And, um, you know, so they were investing in marketing on their end. Uh, but this time it was, you know, it was, it was more on my end to do it. So Kickstarter didn't really help push it forward. Um, so it was a little bit more challenging than I was expecting, but, um, but I'm very happy with where we got and how we got there. So set a goal of $70,000. Now, what did you have before you actually started the Kickstarter? Did you have a prototype? Did you just have the concept? What had you solved up to that point? Yeah. Um, good question. So, uh, in order to launch on Kickstarter, you do need a prototype. They require you to have like a, if it's a product, right. Um, to have proof of concept, if you will. And um, so I worked on it for about three years and I developed technology. There was some setbacks because 2020 was a challenging time for everybody. <laughs> so um, originally I was going to launch in 2020, but um, just because of the state of the world and how everything, you know, played out, um, factories shut down. Even one of the, one of the prototype factories that I enlisted, um, they actually got repossessed by the Chinese government and then um, reused for PPE production because it was just in need, right? Worldwide. Um, so yeah, so there were some challenges, but I'm, I'm really happy to say that, you know, we got through them above them and, uh, and yeah, so I had the prototype and then I launched with the video and a bunch of imagery and, and all the marketing stuff. Cool. Do you have a background? I know you've worked in fashion before, but do you have a background in any of that chemical stuff? Was that all stuff you had to research? How did you go about the more technical part of things? That was, you know, I was really fortunate that I was able to partner up with chemical engineers who they know their business. Um, I, you know, I know that it works because I've seen the studies and, and I've seen the proof in the pudding. Um, but I, I, if you were to put me in front of that kind of world, oh, 
geez, it would be terrible. <laughs> um, so I let them do their job as well as they can. And, um, and then I did my job as well as I could. That's super great. And when you met these people, were they excited to take this project on board? Were they excited to put their skills and brain power to use on something fun and novel like this? Was it interesting for them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I think the world needs a little bit more of, of this kind of initiative in all aspects, right? So if we can find ways to make um, the majority of the products that we consume biodegradable and then eliminate plastics altogether, that would be the ideal situation, right? Yeah. Um, so they're definitely on board with that. That's one of their core missions as well, um, is, is making sure to reduce that plastic impact. Because, you know, right now we have a shifting, um, shifting conversation where we're bringing everything towards um, CO2 neutral, right? We want to get CO2 neutral. And I think that's great. And that's definitely an important goal. But we also have to concentrate on other impacts, the environment, like plastic in particular, because even if we get to CO2 neutral, but then we flooded our oceans with plastic, then we're not really doing ourselves any favors, right? Yep. Completely agree. And of course, the first thought that I had when I came across your website, which is hilarious, I guess you thought of this and all other people apparently think like me. You think of a biodegradable shoe. And the first thought that pops in your head is, I'm going to be out running somewhere in the rain, and this thing's going to dissolve on my feet like acid. <laughs> it's just going to melt away, and you're going to be stuck without shoes. And then I scroll down on the page, and just about a third of the way down the page, it says, it will not biodegrade on your feet. <laughs> I was like, touche, you got this one. Uh, is that something? First of all, how do you solve that? How do you know that it will degrade at the right time and not at the wrong time? And was that a concern that you had? Or is that something that a lot of people asked in the Kickstarter? It was. So even before I launched it, I made sure to, to pull, you know, like all of my friends on what they thought about the idea, if, you know, if it was worth pursuing. Um, and, you know, the first thing that a lot of people do ask you, right, is um, yeah, it's going to fall apart on my feet. Like, yeah. <laughs> what's up with that? Um, so it was really important that I, I'd be super clear. Um, and I repeat it as many times as I can. It's not going to fall apart on your feet. Don't worry. Um, you're not going to turn into Groot as you're, as you're running through the rain. Um, it needs a combination of like moisture and like a consistent underground environment in order for it to start going. Um, and so the way that the compound works is that when you plant it in the ground, um, it takes like a little while for it to start up, but essentially once a few microbes come in and start to, to chow down on it saying, is this a viable food source for decomposition? Um, the, the chemical inside of it starts engaging and then it'll, it'll, you know, essentially um, make them go through a process called quorum sensing. And then that process is what attracts other microbes saying, Hey, this is an awesome food source. Come eat here. And so um, that can't happen while you're just walking around above ground, or even if they're a little moist and they're kind of hanging out in the closet, you don't need to worry. It's going to be okay. Um, it has to be underground for probably about a month before it really kicks in. I love that you said that you might turn into Groot during a run because I hadn't even considered that, but that's a pretty scary idea. I know that there's that old fashioned form of torture where they, they held people flat and they grew bamboo underneath them and bamboo grows so fast that it actually will pierce. It's horrific. Uh, it can be done if you slice off the bamboo. So now I have this vision of two apple trees growing through my feet as I'm running, but <laughs> that's not going to happen. Yeah. No, no torture way. involved. Don't worry. <laughs> no tor yeah. Torture free. That'll be three quarters of the way down the page. But that's, that's super amazing. So you've seen this at this point, obviously. You've seen it with your own eyes. You've buried a shoe. You've seen the process. What does that look like when you've actually buried it? So 
I wish I could have like video like you know videotaped um, the process happening, but it's not super pretty anyway because decomposition isn't pretty. So it's not a great marketing tactic to show something covered in mold. Um, but the way that it works is actually um, I didn't I didn't like personally plant a shoe um, because I didn't have the time to do that right because it takes about three years before it's fully biodegraded and it launches out. So. Um, what we did was instead it was like independent verification through third-party laboratories where they tested out the compound and made sure everything's working. And they're actually the ones who gave us the number um, that'll be 53% biodegraded in 18 months. Um, so that means that like, even though it's not fully biodegraded, um, after about a year and a half, the tree seed should launch out of the soil because enough of it will have decomposed around it um, that it should be able to start germinating at that point. That's incredible. What types of environments can apple trees even grow in? What climate does it need? It's a good question. Um, the reason that I, cho- that I chose apple trees is because since I'm tackling the North American market, um, they can actually grow in the majority of North America. Um, there's different varieties that thrive in different environments. Um, but there, there's some, you know, there's some areas that's just not going to happen. So if you plant them in the Arizona desert, it's just not going to work, right? Uh, but the majority of the rest of North America should be good. But the one thing to keep in mind, though, is that even if you buy them and you're in Arizona, um, you might not be able to plant them in, the, in your backyard, but you can throw them away and then they'll go to the landfill where they're still going to decompose. So they won't become an apple tree, but at least you're not creating um, additional plastics in the environment. I love that. And when you say it and you talk about it, it's like so many of these things, you have to ask yourself, why have we not done this sooner? That's always the greatest thing that I find when I talk to entrepreneurs such as yourself. Why do we need to wear shoes that take a thousand plus years to decompose, if ever, right? Why have we done this this way when we can just swap a few things out? So what were some of the challenges that you faced? Obviously not going into any kind of technical details, but what were some of the things that you had to overcome when you were thinking about the problem of making a biodegradable shoe? Good question. Um, Man, there, there was a lot of a lot of different like um, stepping stones to get to where we got. And, you know, the biggest one was how do we make it fully biodegradable, but still look good, right? Because there's, there's expectations in footwear. Um, and, you know, we've gotten to a point now where luckily the technology's caught up to us and we can make something that's biodegradable, uh, but also look cool. Like we don't have to use crepe outsoles like back in the day, right? So once upon a time, if you wanted to have a biodegradable shoe, um, it had to be crepe outsole. And then that didn't last very long, um, number one, because the traction is just not as great as other ones. It's not as durable as, as um, you know, PETs and stuff like that. So um, there, there was that component of every little, every little thing, like even like the stitching, right? You don't think about the stitching. Um, but a lot of those are plastic-based. So we had to switch to like organic cotton um, thread instead, right? So little things like that. So little adjustments. But I was really fortunate that um, I have a good friend. Uh, his name is Kevin O'Reilly, and um, he's out in China. The majority, actually, now I think like full time. Ever since uh, 2020 hit, he used to do six months in Canada, six months overseas. Um, but he's been helping me coordinate with factories and and you know get everything up and running. And he's got 30 years of experience in in manufacturing, right? So and supply chains. So that's been really really helpful for me overall. Yeah, having somebody boots on the ground. And do you think that China is still the best bet for getting a product made for anybody who has similar ideas? Yeah, right now, um, I would say for footwear, you're really looking at Vietnam or China. Uh, I'm starting to see more and more factories pop up in Canada and uh, and in the United States, which is great, 
Um, I, I really do think that like bringing some of those processes home uh, would be amazing for us. The biggest issue that, that we've kind of encountered is uh, number one, scalability. So it's, it's very difficult to scale products like this um, in Canada at the moment. So China's still, they're still the experts in, in doing this kind of stuff. Plus the technology that they have out there um, makes this a lot more realistic to develop in their country rather than trying to develop those new processes over here. Yeah. Did you read the book Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, his memoir? I did. I, did. I read it probably about five, six years ago. Right. So Interesting. it's not super fresh in my mind though, but... Yeah, well, he talked about going, and I think his supplier was in Japan. So that's why I was kind of wondering if Japan was still a source. At that time, it was a source of shoes. Um, but also, I think Coach Bowerman, Bill Bowerman, his partner in crime, using the waffle iron on these plastic rubber compounds, gave himself brain damage, if you remember that no. part of it. Yeah, he uh -huh. gave himself horrible brain damage because he locked himself in a room in that famous waffle iron shape. It was literally a waffle iron applied to that rubber compound that gave the first tread. But mm -hmm. him being trapped in a room inventing this exposed him to so many harmful fumes that it gave himself bad brain damage. And uh, it's, a, it's a horrible ending to a great story. But mm -hmm. I wanted to ask if the manufacturing process, if you know about that, if, if it's better in that part of it as well to use these types of materials versus their counterparts. It, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, it is. It is. So it's significantly better to use some of the, like the, the compounds that we've chosen to work with in a multitude of ways. So like it brings down number two, your, like number one, your CO2 footprint. Um, but we've come a really long way since the 60s and 70s as far as manufacturing processes. And um, for good reason. I mean, you don't want your workers dying, right? Um, so we, we use like fair, um, fair trade. And, um, you know, it's... It's important that the people that we work with align with our values because otherwise what's the point in making, in making this product, right? Um, I don't want to just create like a good quality of life for, um, you know, for our office out here. I'd, I'd want to make sure that we're creating good quality of life for everybody involved in, in the project. Yep. That makes so much sense. So one of the things that I saw that was really novel and an example of how you've approached things differently is to be water repellent you have used beeswax on the outside because that helps with the permeability of cotton. How did you come mm -hmm. up with that? So, okay. So number one, I hate getting my shoes wet and I hate having wet feet. And I think everybody can agree with that. Yeah. Uh, so it was important that we get some kind of water resistance. Um, the problem though, is that the majority of those sprays that you see like on, on most shoes, um, they're, they're actually made of plastic compounds. They're just like very small plastic compounds that cover the entire shoe. So that would still leave behind like small microplastics in the environment as they're getting worn off with the rain. Right. Um, so we couldn't take that option. Uh, so I just did a lot of research and I was like, what else can we use that'll make it water resistant for at least one full season? Um, and then yeah, beeswax popped up. So, um, I, you know, asked Kevin, I was like, Hey, can we source this in a way that's actually, you know, feasible for us and it's not going to cost an arm and a leg. And uh, yeah, a little bit of digging, and, and sure enough, we made it happen. So That's super, super cool. I think anybody listening is going to be struck by what a novel and interesting idea this is. Maybe let's rewind a bit and talk a bit about your life up to this point. So were you always entrepreneurial? Were you the person who had a lemonade stand as a kid? Was that something always on your mind, or did you do a hard pivot at some point? Um, I, remember, I remember being a kid and planning a dog walking business when I was like nine, 
uh, which was weird because I was allergic to dogs, but it was still like, hey, this is something that's needed. <laughs> There's big uh, money there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think a part of me has always appreciated, you know, the entrepreneurial uh, pursuit. But to say that I really got into it, I mean, this was a, a life path that I wasn't even expecting to take. Um, when I was younger, I really just wanted to make cartoons. And so I went to school for animation. Whoa. Uh, I learned yeah. Yeah. And I, I learned how to do that whole deal. Like I learned how to you know, work with Photoshop Illustrator and then uh, Maya and Autodesk and, and all those programs. Right. So when I actually got out into the field um, after graduating, I did it for like one year and I realized now nah, I'm, I'm better on the business side of things because um, instead of being promoted into, you know, a lead animator role or something like that, um, they instead threw me into production coordination um, and they were like, yeah, this is a good fit for you. And so I just started managing like the teams out there or coordinating the teams, I guess. Um, and then that led into eventually, you know, breaking into shoes after. So, um, I was hanging out 20 or sorry, it was 2008. Um, the crash happened and, um, I was looking for work because our production shut down, which is, you know, it was on schedule. Everything was good, but then I was looking for work and I was reaching out to all these studios. Nobody was hiring, um, because there were, you know, there was no money at the time to, to start new productions. And I got a call from my uncle and my uncle's like, Hey, I was thinking about you. Um, and I know right now you're unemployed has been about three weeks. Like, would you want to come check out what I'm doing? And to be honest, like he was just the cool uncle with a bunch of great stories, but I didn't know what he did. Uh, so I was like, what do you do? And he's like, I sell shoes. And I was like, Oh, that sounds terrible. I don't yeah. want to do that. Very uh, romantic. Like, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, but he's like, no, no, come on out, check it out. So I went out there and it turns out selling shoes is legit. Just driving around to a bunch of stores and being like, hey, you want to hang out and talk a little bit? This is what I'm doing. If there's a need for it, awesome. If not, cool. You know, no problem, but let's be friends, right? And uh, and I realized really quickly I could, I could definitely do that. So um, that kind of launched me into footwear. And now I've been doing it for the last 12 years, I guess. Okay. And at some point in that journey, you realized that there was this monumental waste component. Yeah. When did that um, start to strike you? So I worked, I worked for a few different companies. And um, the first one was a fashion house called Ziggy New York. And what was really impressive about this was that, you know, we were rivaling Steve Madden, um, which was great. So we were like the only like real competitor at the time for them. And it was fast fashion. So we were pumping through tons and tons and tons of shoes, um, like legit hundreds of thousands. And once I was looking at the impact of that, I was like, oh man, like, you know, this is awesome because we're in sales. So it's not a big deal. Uh, but when I got into manufacturing after, uh, and like, you know, I really started like doing shoe design properly and all that, I started learning about the compounds that go into the shoes. And that's when I realized, hey, there, there's an issue here because, you know, there are billions and billions of pairs um, sold every year. And if all of them are made of plastic, then we have a huge problem on our hands for the landfills and the oceans, right? Um, and the majority of them are the majority of them are made of like, you know, EVA of PhD, um, various different, you know, uh, different plastic compounds have different names, but at the end of the day, it still sticks around for about a thousand years. So, so realizing what, yeah. that, mm -hmm. uh, so realizing that that's when I was like, I need to, I need to do something. So, um, I think I did research for probably a good year, um, before I even got close to where I needed to be for, for Johnny. But why did you need to do something? When you could have just done things the way they'd always been done, you could have just made more money, you could have just kept polluting the planet. Why did you feel that you needed to do something? That's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. 
I think everybody in life, like, like everybody has their own life to live. And, and, you know, some people have strictly monetary pursuits, right? And that's great. You know, if that's your deal, awesome. Um, but when I was defining my values, um, I want to say like three, four years ago, I started defining my values and I started realizing that at least for me, like that a big part of why I do what I do is that I want to leave the world a better place than when I came in. Um, and so, you know, just selling shoes, cool, designing cool shoes that people connect with. That's awesome too. Like that's definitely impactful. Um, but I want to make sure that it was positive in a, in a, a larger way. Um, and so if I could change the way the shoes are made, um, even, you know, if Johnny is successful, amazing, but if everybody starts waking up to this too, and all footwear starts changing towards a sustainable option, then, you know, I've done something good. So, yeah, yeah because that's, that's the thing that I've noticed. And I think we all struggle with this, this concept between artistry and commercialism or eco-friendly and not. And in our own way, people who notice these problems are constantly confronted with that. For example, of all the business podcasts out there, the most popular ones are just how I made a million dollars. Who cares how I made it? Eco-friendly <laughs> is not even a beginning. It's not even a part of that conversation because that's a waste of time. It's not the biggest possible market. And if you're a true, true entrepreneur, you would only care about what will make you the most money the fastest. And that's what everybody wants to hear. How I made $400,000 last week and so on. But if you do care, you're automatically in a niche market. And then there's some people who say, forget about that. So there's always this tension, I think, between business, economic pursuits, and making the world a better place. And it's this intersection that I'm so, so fascinated by because I think so many people believe that it's one or the other. If they have either gone into it or if they haven't, they think, why would I do that? Why would I go to the trouble of developing something like this when I can just not do that and not have to worry about it and I might be able to make more money? So I'm very fascinated about the intersection of people who realize that, yes, you can make money while still doing something better than it was done before. And for me personally, I think that's the coolest thing. I, I totally agree. And um, one, of the, one of the craziest things is that nowadays, I, I think there's, um, there's been a shift where that intersection is becoming more and more relevant to, to general consumers. And we're actually paying attention to the way that things are made. Like People are deep diving into like how their products are made. Um, for good reason, right? Because like you want to make sure that whatever you're supporting financially, uh, whatever company it is, also supports your values, right? So, um, you know, if, if you're buying a phone that actively uses sweatshops and child labor, um, then you know that you're actually leaving the world a worse place by supporting that company, right? And so there's a huge incentive yeah. for companies to, to clean up their acts and, and to do things properly. So I would kind of say that they're, uh, it's actually more profitable to do things right uh, or to make things sustainable and to do things right, right off the bat, because you're saving yourself a lot of cleanup later on or possibly negative press or whatever, um, by implementing processes when you're still new as the company. So you're, you know, you're leading with your best foot. Um, so if anything, yeah, I would say it's more profitable. Okay, folks, we're going to have a quick little pause from the action here to take a commercial break. This time the commercial is going to be for my own company, Aloha Marketing. That's A-L-O-A -A Marketing specializing in website creation, digital marketing, all aspects of the digital domain, SEO, SEM, paid search, you name it. If you're trying to build a brand just like Luke is, you need all kinds of stuff to sell your things. You need a website, you need a social media, you need video, you need audio, you need all kinds of stuff to make it work 
especially if you're trying to actually accept payment via e-commerce on your website or this or that or the other thing. Aloha Marketing is my full-service digital agency where we specialize in transforming clients with a mission to help them reach their goals. We tend to focus on nonprofits and mission-oriented companies, people who are making a difference in the world because we believe that with great skill in marketing comes an obligation to only amplify the stories that deserve to be amplified. So if you or someone you know is starting a business and is in need of world-class digital marketing, visit aloamarketing.com. That's A-L-O-A marketing.com. Now back to the episode. Yeah, and I think that that is what we've seen because often in human history, there's this notion that we'll just do it the fastest way first and then later we'll deal with the consequences. Later we'll do this. We'll solve it. We'll offset our carbon footprint later. And I've worked with some people who have done those kinds of things. But culture is so important at the beginning of these types of operations because if you build your business on the idea of profit for profit's sake and money, 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 and you get those types of people and those types of managerial positions, it is very, very, very difficult later to say, hey, this is important. But if you attract those people from day one and you bake it into the core of what your business is all about, then you don't need to make that kind of shift because all of the people working on your project have at least something in common with your values. It's true. It is very true. Um, and, and that's, you know, I've, I've worked for some companies that... Uh, their values were a little, a little loose, if you will. Um, we all and it makes know it challenging, right? <laughs> but it's but challenging it for challenge. people like us, yeah. yeah. Because um, if, if you're not standing for something, right, it's, it's hard to actually sell that, that message to anybody else afterwards. So like one, one of the examples actually that, that I think is a great example of a company that's doing good is Patagonia. Um, Patagonia knows who they are. And they're about getting outdoors. They're about um, <clears throat> leaving the world a better place than they found it, right? And I love everything about that. I think that message is amazing. Um, and when you look at anybody wearing Patagonia, you know what they stand for. Um, when you speak to anybody from Patagonia, they all kind of have that same feel to them, right? Um, so they built a culture that to me is really unique and like really special. Um, and that I think more companies should be striving towards because um, when you have that kind of identity, you don't even need to question the product after. You know what you're getting, right? So as soon as you see the name, you're like, this is what they stand for, this is what it is. Um, and that's really the goal of, of branding, right? Is, is to let the world know what you stand for and who you are, so. Yeah, and, and the other cool thing that you've managed to do, like you said, many people when they're thinking of a product, they're thinking of solving something, but you recognize, which I think is genius, the need to have a hook, a marketing, a brand forward hook, and that hook, of course, being the apple seed, because anybody could just plant an apple tree. So in a sense, that's irrelevant, right? <laughs> but it's a great story. And it's a great point. And what we've seen is that a lot of the coolest businesses out there, they have some kind of hook that gets people interested. And then you slide in the deeper message, which is sort of secondary, but it was really the primary point of all of it from your perspective. The primary point is making shoes that are better for the environment. And this other thing is a way to get people like Drew Barrymore to say, hey, that's a cool product. Whoa, what are you doing? To get people like me to say, hey, that's awesome. And here we are. I think that's true. I mean, great. If you wanted to, you could go to the grocery store right now, buy an apple, and then. Right, exactly. This is not a hard problem to solve (laughs) of any variety that you choose. Mm -hmm. But but it's true. It it was just something that, you know, it would open up people to the idea. Um, 
Because it's it's one thing to say, hey, my shoe biodegrades, and people are like, all right, cool. Like that's that's pretty sweet. It's another thing to say, my shoes grow into apple trees. Um, at least for me, I was like, oh, this is genius. And I wish it there is. was some cool story that you know that um that I was walking down the street and you know, there was an apple tree that was like blooming out of a, a plastic bottle or something. There's no cool story like that. Uh, I was actually just driving to Ottawa and um I've got this thing where I really like driving with the music off. It just gives me time to think, right? And I just kind of go through different things in my head of like, I just think on one problem. And so I thought of the biodegradable shoe. I had worked through the compound and like how we can make that work. I was like, but how do I make people pay attention to this? And um, it took me like six hours of just kind of running through, um, you know, how how that would work. And then the concept design. I remember getting to my buddy's house in, in Ottawa and he was like, hey, buddy, how are you doing? And I just like ran towards a uh, pencil and paper. And I was like, I got to jot this down really fast. I'm like, I figured out how we're going to integrate this into the soul. Um, and then it took life from there. So that, let that be a lesson to any budding entrepreneurs. Drive with the music off. That's where you get your idea. I think Sarah Blakely talked about that, the inventor of Spanx. I think she also talked about her inspiration came from driving. Or she would drive in times when she didn't have to. So that's an interesting tip. Yeah, I wonder if it's a thing. I guess it's kind of like meditation in a way, right? Because it's just you and the road, and it's it's really mon- like monotonous. Like there's nothing special happening. You're just driving, right? So I think it lets your brain get into like this state of just comfort, and then you can start really tackling things that that might be bothering you or like that that you might have to tackle, right? So that's so cool. Well, there's one other component of your story that I think is super interesting that I didn't even know before we got on this call, but the fact that you wanted to be an artist first. And that is another question that I have, and I think it's relevant to a lot of people as well, because I think a lot of people in this day and age are asking themselves, how do I maximize my own potential? Whatever that means. How do I get the most out of my own life? For me, I have always been a creative person. I like theater, comedy, Conan O'Brien, Stephen Colbert. There's this part of my personality. And then there's another part of my personality that is good at systems and running businesses and project management and all of that. And a lot of times these things seem incompatible. And it seems to me very interesting that you had a completely different career plan for yourself and then you found that you were good at this. So I'm curious now that you've done that, how do you feel about your former dream? Does it feel like you left something behind? Do you regret that? Are there days where you say, I really wish I'd stuck with that? Or do you feel like you really are a better fit for what you're doing now? That's a good question. Um... I mean, I don't regret anything that I've done uh, or left behind because I still keep it in my life. Um, so actually probably behind me right there, you can see I'm still painting um, and I do it at my leisure. So I'm, I'm not forced into it. I think that was one of the big things about animation was that when you're you're sitting down for, you know, eight to 12 hours a day, um, just drawing, you start hating drawing. Um, that's what happened with me. You know, like when I was doing that, uh, that schooling and then that one year out after, I got really sick of it and I didn't, I don't even think I touched uh, a pencil and paper for like artistic sake um, for like 10 years after. So I was just so done with it. Um, but, you know, about three, four years ago, or sorry, about three years ago, I started painting. And I remember I went on this date with this girl and we sat down. All I had to talk about was business. And I was like, oh man, dude, this is terrible for both of us. You know, um, I should actually start participating in, in other areas of my life um, rather than just working. So I took a painting course at OCAD 
And, uh, and it was awesome. You know, it opened up that world to me again. It made it fun. Um, and so now, you know, I can enjoy my artistic pursuits and then I can also, you know, do the business. Um, I'd love to say eight hours a day, but it's usually more, um, because, you know, having that separation of the two, um, helps me like fulfill both sides, like my creative side, but then also the business side as well. That's, that's a great concept. Everything gets corrupted when you attach money to it or when yeah. you need to sell this, it's no longer an internal thing. And it's, it's a theme that I've talked about over and over again, the tension between what comes from within and what the world needs, what you want to make versus what the world wants to buy, what you want to say versus what the world wants to hear. And I'm always interested in how people find that balance. So, do you feel that you are better suited to this work that you have more natural abilities as a leader of a company than you do as an artist, or is it more of a choice in terms of what you like to do? Um, yeah, I think I'm better suited. Like I'm definitely better suited to this and even, even like designing shoes, right? There's still, um, there's still art within that. And then coming up with marketing campaigns, there's that as well. You know, like most of my day, I'm probably fiddling, like fiddling with Photoshop or illustrator at some point anyway. Um, so there, there's little elements, but I think, I think some people are just, um, like, it's important to realize what you're good at and then really maximize that. So, you know, I'm good at the business processes, but I'm not good at everything. Um, when it comes to accounting, I'm terrible. Like I'm absolutely terrible. So, you know, I got accountants for that. Um, everybody's good at different things. Just figure out what you're good at and, and really run with it. I'd say that's probably the most important thing. Are you a spreadsheet type of person? Do you live in Excel docs? I hate that I, stuff. I, you know, I'll, I'll use Excel for certain things, but it's mostly just like, you know, customer lists and, and uh, media lists and stuff like that. I'm better on the phone than I am in a spreadsheet for sure. So that's, that's mostly what I use them for. And do you have a partner who is more that? I, I call it type A. I don't even know if that's accurate, but do you have a business partner or somebody working for you who is more the inside the box dealing with those types of things person uh, so like i'm a solo founder um so, yeah solo founder but i think it's important to just establish people um that, that you work well with that can help you out so um i like for example i have a buddy who's a he's a ca and um he kind of went through the books with me at one point he's like you know maybe you need to adjust this or whatever um which is really helpful but then yeah. now i've got actual accountants on board um which are, are doing the real work for me so that's that's great completely makes sense and i think one of the most interesting things about your story being in this moment this moment is such a cool moment in time because you started so relatively recently and i noticed and this is one of the reasons that i created this show was because i read a lot of biographies i've read a lot of business books been very passionate about that for a very long time but they always gloss over the most important part. It's like Warren Buffett had a few uh, candy machine, had a few gumball machines in a couple places. Each one of them was making him $3 a day. Flash forward and he has his first million. And I always say, but no, 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 don't, don't flash forward. What happened between $20 a day and $100,000? What happened between $100,000 and a million? And you're living it right now. This is the moment where things are about to change one way or another in a big way. How do mm. you feel? Are you, is it terrifying? Is it exciting? Um, do you feel uh, safe or w what's the emotion that you feel? Yeah, that's, yeah, nobody talks about that. You're right. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it is scary um, for sure. I think like if, 
if anybody was going to tell you that it's easy, it's not easy. Um, the most challenging thing about that, that, that first journey up towards where you want to get is, um, is kind of breaking your own mindset because the majority of us, right. We have like a nine to five, we show up, we get paid for our time we go home and then that's it. Right. And then sometimes you have a side hustle maybe you're selling some stuff on eBay or whatever, but like, you know, um, most people, they get paid to do this. And now this is the, and one of the first times where I'm breaking out and everything's depending on my ability to, to scale and grow this company. Um, which is a great motivator though, you know, it'll make you put in your, your 12 hours a day for sure. Um, and I think that's probably the reason that people don't talk about that first million, right. Is because it's a lot of work. It's just a lot of sitting there grinding away and and doing the things that, um, are probably not scalable, you know, but, but that are important at this stage to get up to that, that level where you can start, you know, hiring all the right people in the right places to, to start automating those processes for you. Yeah. And how do you put that kind of pressure on yourself? Because there's a tremendous gap between the people out there, probably the vast majority of people who have an idea or there's something that they vaguely want to do. I maybe want to start a business one day. I don't know what it is. I don't know what I'll do. And they're sitting there playing video games 10 hours a day, twiddling their thumbs, watching Netflix 10 hours a day. They're not putting any pressure on themselves or there's so much pressure that it leads them to inaction. They're so overwhelmed that they just don't do anything. I think almost everybody can relate to that feeling. So how did you put the right amount of pressure on yourself to get that forward momentum? And then when did it switch to where you felt that there was some kind of external force that was helping you put in that 12-hour day so that it wasn't just, I don't feel like it today, I'm not going to do it? Um, so like at the beginning, I, there wasn't that much pressure to be honest. Like, you know, I had a comfortable job. I was doing well. Um, and I was just kind of doing this as, as a side project. Right. So it was really just weekends, some evenings, it wasn't too much work. Um, but once I started picking up traction and I got those samples in like the first prototype in, then I was like, Oh man, this is, this is something real. Like I can make something out of this. Um, what I would say to anybody who struggles with, with getting that motivation is put yourself in a position where no matter what you have to do it, right? Because for me, like what really helped was once I had that, that traction, that, that motivation, um, I started spending a lot of money on the business, to be honest. And I was like, I can't, I can't dump $10,000 plus into something and not give it 110%, right? Um, so once I started putting money in, then it was, it was real, um, there was, there was actually stuff on the line here. And um, once the ball started rolling, then you just have to keep going, right? The, if, if people are calling you for interviews, you can't say no. You know, I'm, I'm too lazy right now. I don't feel like it. I want to play video games or Netflix or whatever, right? Um, people are calling you for interviews. You have to say like, yes, let's do it. Let's get, you know, let's get out there and talk about um, this this invention, right? Or the, this creation, this company that, that I'm birthing. Um and once that you get in the habit of that, then it just keeps flowing, right? So it becomes a little bit more natural after. Yeah, that, that is clear that based on what we've seen, that once the momentum starts, something else kicks in. You're in a completely different path at that point. But yeah. so many people struggle with getting to that point. And if we're honest, many people never do in their whole lives. Many people never know. cross that bridge. Well, I don't think everybody has to, right? So sure. not everybody's built to start their own business. And that's that's okay. Um, to be honest, like if it's not for you, it's not for you. Um, people that want to and, and are struggling with it, I would I would honestly I would actually even say 
Uh, more important than starting your own business is come up with something that people want, right? Um, so maybe like maybe you are struggling because you haven't validated your idea yet, right? Even with with Johnny, I had three different iterations of it uh, before I even went to market, and it, it actually started off as um, a sandal. I was just going to make a sandal that was like easy to pump out, uh, create the molds for it. It was going to be pretty cheap. Um, hopefully, you would be able to pick them up for about forty dollars a slide, and then yeah. that was it. Right. But when I started doing the market research on it, um, I found out there wasn't a need for that. Like the market wasn't going to accept it. And the retailers that I'd lined up um, weren't willing to, to spend the extra $5 on that slide compared to the current one that they had, even though it was biodegradable. <clears throat> so there's little things like that where I started shifting and adjusting. And then once that I finally had um, a concept that people were excited about when I would tell them about it and then people wanted to buy it even before I'd shown them a drawing of it, um, that's where I knew I had something pretty special. And then that's where the motivation really started kicking in where I was like, okay, like I've got something, let's run with it. Um, but if, if you're not excited about it and people aren't getting excited about it, maybe you need to shift and adjust and pivot what you're working on until you find that, that magic spot. Right. That's so interesting. Don't try to force it. Let it come from outside in. Let the people tell you if you're onto something or not. Yeah. And yeah. To that end, in your Kickstarter, were you expecting to meet that goal? Were you surprised? Did it take off on its own? Did you have to put in an extreme amount of effort? How did you actually do that? It was an extreme amount of effort. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish it was easy. To be honest, Like the crazy part is once the ball was rolling, um, I was already three quarters of the way through the Kickstarter. So it took a lot to get it up and running right off the bat. Um, I put together a list of probably about 5,000 uh, reporters and, and publishers and um, producers. And then I just legit emailed every single one. Um, so I would stay up until two in the morning, just writing up these emails and scheduling them for 8 a.m. So it didn't look like I was emailing them at 2 a.m. Um, but yeah, I just, I just emailed everybody that I could and then and, and found those emails where I could. Went through a lot of mastheads um, for newspapers and, and yeah, just ran with it. But even before that, um, I tried, I, I had listed out in my business plan about five different marketing strategies to, to really test and push, right? So um, one of them was Facebook advertisements uh, and Instagram advertisements. And then I was targeting, I'd already um, listed out my demographic and uh, just targeting them, right? But then A-B testing it against other demographics, et cetera. Um, the other component was using Reddit to post to subreddits. Uh, at the time, I was a moderator of our yeah. shoes. Um, wow. So, cool. Yeah. So I, I could push it through. Um, and then a few different, there's a few other strategies as well. Right. And I started testing out to see um, which one would work the best. And um, it was okay. Like all of it was kind of okay. Um, the Facebook ads and Instagram ads were terrible. That was a waste of time. Hmm. Um, but the thing that really stuck was when I got my first article in uh, blog TO and that really started getting some attention. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, Global News called me up to book a segment. So I did a segment with them. Um, Newsweek, uh, like a bunch of city TV, a bunch of different stations started calling me up. And when that global article hit, um, or so that, that global segment hit, um, I got about $10,000 in one day of funding. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is worth pursuing. And so then I just went all in on that strategy and I let the other ones kind of trickle out. Um, mm. Because like, if you're spending a lot of time on Reddit, but you're not getting any actual tangible sales out of it, then it's not really worth your time, right? Yeah. 
that's really cool. So when when you were pitching these people, what were you what were you saying? Hey, I've got this new idea that's going to change everything. To, will you feature it, or what were you asking for in those emails? Um. So originally, I tried a few different uh, tactics for it, and the first one was just sending out a press release saying, "Hey, this is what I'm working on. This is what it is. It just launched. If you want to cover it." That, that was met with okay results. Um, what I found was a lot more effective was, um, hey, I've got this thing. It's pretty cool. I think it would make a great story. Um, if you're into it, I'd love to work with you on it. Um, and then I found that was getting a lot better because it's, it's quite a bit more human. Um, and, and, and it's honest, right? Like I'm not a PR agent. I, I've never done PR in my life. I'm just a dude who started a company, right? Um, with what I think is a cool idea. And hoping that other people find it cool too, and um, and luckily that that resonated pretty well. Amazing, five thousand emails. That's the <laughs> stuff that nobody wants to talk about. That's <laughs> you can't tweet that quickly. You can't put that into a pithy one-liner for Instagram. That's just boots on the ground, <laughs> going hard. It's tough, man. It's tough, but that's. That's the things that you need to do at the beginning that aren't scalable, right? Like, and, and I realize that it's not scalable. I can't spend all day, every day, just sending out emails to, uh, to producers and, and, and journalists, right? Um, but it's important to do at the beginning because like, if I'm not going to do it, nobody's going to do it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And the fact that you did it yourself instead of outsourcing that probably also contributed to your success because only you could maybe sell your vision Nobody else can quite put it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a big part of it. I think you're right. Um, you know, I know my product best and, and honestly, I didn't want to get in front of cameras. Like that, that sounded terrifying to me at the time um, to, to get out in front of the world and be like, Hey, this is me. This is what I'm doing. Uh, it's a lot of pressure, but um, if I wasn't going to do it, the, the project wasn't going to succeed. And that's the kind of motivation that you need to really get things done. And it gets you out of your comfort zone. And, um, and I'm happy to say now, if you put me in front of a camera, I'm very comfortable. You're doing great. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. But, but that's, you know, it's, it's good to challenge yourself and find out what you're capable of. And you never know. I mean, you might even find out that you actually enjoy it. Fantastic. Well, as we approach the end of our hour here, I do want to ask a couple of rapid fire questions. So I think there are a few things that you've learned, but what are some of the most unusual things that you have taken away from this process? Or what are things that you now believe that you didn't used to believe or surprising things that you've learned that maybe go against the grain? Um, okay, so one of the surprising things that I actually encountered uh, was that you should not call a shoe vegan if there's any animal byproducts, even if it's like cruelty-free. Uh, because very quickly I got shut down by the vegan community for calling my shoe vegan. Um, but what I also learned was that it's, um, it's a very welcoming community in the sense that they just want you to educate yourself. And so, uh, once I changed it to cruelty free, um, then, you know, vegans were very happy with it. They were like, all right, that's cool. Like, we're still not going to buy your shoes, but we're not going to give you a hard time because you're, you're trying to do good. Right. So, um, what I, what I definitely learned was fact check everything before you put it out. Um, <laughs> And in that scenario, they're saying, I'm not going to buy your product because it has trace amounts of beeswax, but I am going to buy harmful plastic. Would that be the choice that they're making instead? Um, well, I mean, like, given the opportunity, I don't know. Like, maybe, So what I'm planning to do is... Is there a vegan sh- shoe? Uh, there, there are vegan shoes, but they use plastic. So that's so. what I'm saying. So that's an interesting ethical moral choice. You're saying, I'd rather do this than that. And 
as somebody who was vegan for a couple years, I just find those types of like beeswax not okay or whatever else you use, but coming back to the thousand years of never decomposing, that is okay. I just I'm always amazed by those types of value judgments. It's it's a conundrum, but it did inspire me to start working on a vegan shoe that's truly vegan. So cool. um, I'm I'm working on one that's not going to have the beeswax, but will still be water resistant just because of like a thicker weave um, that's a little bit tighter. And so hopefully that'll work. So I'm still in testing stages for that. Um, but Very I'd like cool. to give them an option, right? That, yes. That, uh, that works with their values. So Very cool. Well, I think, yeah, what you've done is is truly outstanding. It's a very awesome idea. It's a noble thing. I, I hope that it becomes incredibly successful. And if it did, aside from matching and exceeding John Chapman, old Johnny Appleseed and 50,000 trees planted, what would be the best thing that could happen in the next one year or five years? What, how do you see this going if everything works out? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to make Johnny a household name. Um, that would be ideal, right? Like, I think some companies uh, that, that are, are socially motivated, like um, like Tom's, right? Tom's did a great job of really exploding onto the market um, because their message connected with people. And I'm really hoping to get Johnny out the same way where, you know, it connects with people. And, and when you're walking in the street and you see a, a sneaker with red laces, then you automatically think, ah, they're, they're wearing Johnny's. So that would be ideal. Very cool. Well, I support you wholeheartedly from my little area. I think it's really Great. I'm very glad to have met you. Thank you again for taking the time to sit down with me and join me on this show. I do want to give the floor to you, so i like to let you wrap this up. So whatever you want to say, whatever you want to promote, the floor is yours. So take it away, and we'll end up this episode. Thank you. No, and honestly, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak about what I'm doing and, and you know let your viewers know a little bit more about my little company. Um, so if you're interested in checking out the sneakers themselves, um, you can just go to uh, www.johnnyfootwear.com and um, and take a look. And if it's something that connects with you, then then you know uh, you can pick up a pre-order pair. We're going to be shipping them out August 2022. August 2022. Okay, great. And what's the price on those shoes? Uh, they go for 130 Canadian, roughly 100 dollars USD. Okay, sounds good. Sounds like a great great thing. And uh, with that, again, thank you. And the official podcast is over. What a great episode. If you enjoyed that, all I ask is that you take a quick moment to rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you're on Apple Podcasts and you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you subscribe, leave a nice review, share these episodes, do whatever you can to help the podcast grow because I can't do it without you. We're all in this together. If you believe in the mission of these kinds of people, if you want to make the earth a better place and you believe that these are the people to do it, share these stories with somebody who needs to hear it and help me grow the podcast with you. I can't do it without your help. It's all I ask. So thank you for listening. I'm Ross Palmer, and I'll see you next week on the Be The Often Path podcast.